Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a new cookbook from the Minnesota Historical Society Press features recipes and history from Minnesota's iconic Lincoln Dell and former Minnesota Viking Ben Lieber has a preview of the Viking season ahead of their opener versus New Orleans. But first... No DACA! No beer! No DACA! No beer! Activists outside state Republican Party headquarters in Minneapolis this week protesting President Trump's plan to dismantle the government program called DACA that protects young immigrants illegally brought to the U.S. as children this is a peaceful demonstration we are grateful to have you all here this will be the beginning of us showing up for each other we are here in community. Activists kicked off their campaign against the president's plan for DACA at the state capitol in St. Paul. Bill Werner covered it. Scott, a good-sized group of academics, state lawmakers, and others stood in front of the cameras, and staffers read statements from Senators Amy Klobuchar and Al Franken that were critical of what the president proposes. Catalina Morales with the group Isaiah talked about her own personal experience. I've been working with Isaiah for about three years now, fighting for our immigrant community, and the only reason that I was able to do that was because of DACA. Um, when I received DACA, I was able to get um, a driver's license, start living where I could provide a good life for my family, for my parents. My sisters and I have been responsible for maintaining my mother, who has been here over two decades, and has given all her life to this country in her work and has not received anything back. And right now, in this decision, this... Um, if DACA is rescinded and is taken back by March 5th and Congress doesn't do anything about it, it will affect my life and the life of my family. And it will affect everyone around me because most of the communities that I live with and I know, um, you know, they have mixed status families. So someone in the household is providing, paying, you know, putting their name under their bills um, so that their parents can survive and their family can survive. So this is a decision that is going to affect not only DACA recipients, but their whole families and whole communities. And this will affect also our communities and our economy, because I'm pretty sure that almost everyone knows a DACA recipient, whether they are aware of it or not. But I do want to say that I am not afraid of what's happening. I think it is time that this happened. I am blessed that DACA happened, and I'm blessed that it gave me a voice, but it is also not good enough for our communities. We asked Morales about President Trump's argument that those in the U.S. illegally are taking jobs from American citizens. What Trump says is a lie, and, I mean, the man lies all the time. Um, there is many things that have been said about immigrants taking jobs. The reality is this country won't know what it's going to do if it would, were to deport all of us because we are doing jobs that no one else is doing. And if we're really realistic, Minnesota will look at having that problem within 10 years or maybe less, where there will be jobs in rural Minnesota that are not going to be filled if the undocumented community is not there. So I think what I would say to that is that, at least in Minnesota's perspective, we need to get to know our neighbors. That's Catalina Morales with Isaiah. For the other side, we talked with Jennifer Carnahan, chair of the Republican Party of Minnesota. I believe that the president's actions around this 
are reasonable and they ensure that we remain a nation of laws and follow our constitution and that we don't become a government um, that just relies on executive action. If you read the U.S. Constitution, it's clear on the subject in Article 1, Section 8. It's Congress, not the president or the judicial branch, that is given the power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. So when President Obama actually implemented DACA, that was unconstitutional because he wasn't following, you know, what was in the U.S. Constitution. He was instead exerting his executive power. And what President Trump is doing is giving Congress the time to find a legislative solution to the issue. Now, my next question is not so much about the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of what President Obama did, but more what the uh, the supporters of that program are saying, that these undocumented immigrants, uh, that the economy is really going to suffer if they're not there to do the jobs that, that no one else is willing to do, specifically the economy in, in Minnesota and rural Minnesota in particular. What do you have to say to that? Well, I don't think that's true, because I think if you look at the economy, um, and let's take a look at Minnesota, the state we live in, you know, there are plenty of people that don't have jobs, right? So, you know, and it's not, if you look at what was what's being proposed and to go back in front of Congress, it's not all of a sudden that everybody's cut out of the U.S., right? That's not, you know, it's not just a, here's the date and you're you're basically out of luck, right? He's proposing it to go back to Congress and follow a process. And, you know, as mentioned, there have been people in in Minnesota and in the United States that have been negatively impacted because they have to compete for jobs against um, individuals that maybe are here illegally. So I, I don't think that's the case. Anything else that you want to add? No, I think that's it. I, I guess I would just go back and say around um, the march and the protests starting at our state party headquarters with DACA, I think since I became chairman of the Republican Party, there have been three or four protests that have started at our office. And it's, it's concerning and alarming that it continues to happen. You know, there are ways to share your views or your oppositions to things, but not always having to go on the attack, you know, against our party. And what we're trying to do in Minnesota, which is to be more positive, to be able to bring, bring people into the party, invite people in, and, and share a more positive perspective around politics. That's Minnesota Republican Party Chair Jennifer Carnahan. Attorneys general from 15 states plus the District of Columbia are suing to try to block the president's action. Minnesota is not in that group, at least not yet. Attorney General Lori Swanson said in a statement issued this week, quote, Minnesota was one of two states that filed the lawsuit that struck down the executive order travel ban in February. We filed the lawsuit on our own timetable after carefully analyzing the facts and law. Our approach was successful. We are taking the same approach in this case. While we are still examining the facts and law to determine the best method to proceed, Minnesota will be involved in this litigation. Unquote, Minnesota Attorney General Lori Swanson. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. This week's announcement that DACA could soon come to an end has some Minnesota educators on edge. MNN's Tasha Radel explains. That's right, Scott. Shortly after the Trump administration announced plans to end the DACA program, Education Minnesota jumped into action, reminding parents the state's educators strive to make schools safe and welcoming and that all students have the right to a free public education, regardless of immigration status. Joining me now is Denise Specht, president of Education Minnesota. 
Well, wanted to visit with you a little bit. Obviously, uh, the Trump administration's announcement uh, this week to move forward with uh, ending the DACA program has really uh, stirred up a lot of uneasiness, not only around the country, but here in Minnesota. And I know um, Minnesota educators are wanting to get the word out there that uh, no matter what on this uncertainty, that kids are always welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in your message? Right. You know, um, there are a lot of politics going on out there. Um, but it doesn't matter where educators are working. Our job, our priority is to to teach and to make sure that our students feel safe and welcome um, in our schools. So that is our focus. Um, you know, we've really spent a full year. Um, it's been quite a year, actually. If you think about where we were a year ago um, with a presidential election and then um, post-election, there was a lot of hate speech, bullying, um, graffiti, a lot of um, behaviors that permeated into our schools. And a lot of it was due to kind of, we call it the Trump effect, things that were going on out in the world that ended up trickling into our schools. So we've been dealing with a lot of this for over a year now. And unfortunately, with the decision, we've just got more fear and uncertainty that is spreading into our schools. And, you know, these kids that have undocumented parents, are, are you seeing them bring this fear, you know, to school, to the classroom? Are you working with teachers? Because I couldn't imagine being such a fragile little mind and then just worrying at any moment that you're going to be taken away from your parents or separated. Absolutely. I mean, students can't learn when they're scared and students can't learn when they're worried about um, whether they're going to see their families or their friends again. And we are seeing this. We're seeing it um, in different ways all over the state. But um, let's be clear that even though um, DACA has been repealed, um, all students have a right to a free public education, and we're not going to sit by the sidelines. We're going to make sure that um, we're having um, conversations with as many people as we can. Um, We want to make sure that All of our schools are safe and welcoming for everybody and that our students know it. But we're also doing what we can to support um, our students' families and our communities and our partners um, in getting through the process and making sure that they have the right information um, so that they can, so they know what's going on too. And, you know, not to be a pessimist, I I hate being that way, but I I was thinking about this last night um, when all this news broke. Is there any fears that that, um, um, undocumented parents will will pull their kids out of of school and they won't get this education? Or are you, like you mentioned earlier, really trying to keep this line of communication open? I think that there is always that chance. I mean, when... When I taught second grade, I had a student who um, she and her family went to Mexico to visit their family, and she never came back. Um, Now, I don't know really what was behind all of that, but you're right. I mean, as as an educator, I'm worried, you know, am I going to see all of my students tomorrow? Um, Where are they going to go? Um, We just don't know that. So I think there is that level of fear. 
And let's talk a little bit about, you know, we've been hearing a lot about um, protecting the dreamers. When you hear that, what what comes to your mind? Uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot about dreamers, this coined phrase. Well, um, you know, I, I, I know a lot of dreamers, <laughs> and I suspect that there are a lot of people I know who aren't dreamers, but this is, this is what we know about them. They are children who were brought here to this country by their parents. Um, they go to school. They have jobs. They do background checks. They don't have c- criminal records. These are people who are contributing to our society. Um, these are good people. And um, that's when, what I think of when I think of our dreamers. These are these are our neighbors. These are our friends. For me as a teacher, they're my students, but they're also my colleagues, and they're the parents of the uh, students that I teach. Um, and I just can't believe um, that these wonderful people in our society are being targeted. Um, this is about hate. This is about bigotry. And... This is about political points, and unfortunately, we're talking about real lives. Thanks again to my guest, Denise Specht, President of Education Minnesota. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The Lincoln Dell was a Minnesota institution for decades, offering top-notch delicatessen food and baked goods as well as a friendly community atmosphere for customers of all ages. A new cookbook from the Minnesota Historical Society Press, written by Wendy Zelkin-Rosenstein with help from Kit Naylor, not only features some of the Dell's most beloved recipes, but also tells the story of how the Dell came to be and why it was so special. Here's my chat with Zelkin Rosenstein about the family business that so many of us remember all these years later. Well, it, it was a family business. My family's name was Berenberg, and my great-grandfather came from Romania through Canada to the Midwest, and uh, he was a baker, and he went into business with the Malinsky family, and uh, the Berenberg and Malinsky's opened up something called the Northside Bakery in Minneapolis. And then uh, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, went up on his own and opened up his own bakery, and we would supply a lot of the restaurants and what they called cold shops back then, also some delicatessens in the area. And we eventually moved the business to St. Louis Park. And it was a bakery and then expanded to a deli counter and then a restaurant added on. And we expanded into another location, St. Louis Park, on Highway 100 and then Highway 12. And then expanded to a third location in Bloomington, which is where I officially went on the payroll at age 11 as the soda jerk. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, uh, as an 11-year-old soda jerk, what did you have to learn and what was the hardest part? Well, I definitely learned how to deal with the staff and other employees, and I had a responsibility to make sure that all the desserts went out right and supplied um, ice cream or whatever the bar needed that was on the other side of the wall from me that was serving the customers. Uh, It was a lot of fun. I got to see my whole family. You know, we all opened up that location together. 
So it was great to see what it, you know, at 11, to see what it takes to be right in the middle of it all, off of the kitchen, getting involved in what the daily operations were. It was exciting for me. And it was nice to have family right there. It's mentioned in the book, but tell me, where did the Lincoln part of Lincoln Dell come from? Honest Abe Lincoln. My great-grandfather Frank wanted to have a name that was recognizable, and a name that had uh, a reputation that went along with it as being, you know, good and honest and trustworthy. And that's how we, how we got the name Lincoln. I just love that. Uh, Wendy, why did you decide to put the story and the recipes of this iconic Minnesota deli in book form at, at this time after all these years? Well, um, since it closed in 2000, there isn't a day that goes by that one of us is asked, when are you going to bring it back, or when are you going to open it again, or where's the recipe, can I have one, honestly, on a daily basis. So even though it's been 17 years, it has uh, definitely been brought up to us and reminded us by lots of people that um, it was very much missed, and and uh, the uh, reputation has definitely not gone away of being one of the last places where, you know, kids that grew up in the 60s and 70s remember just going for a family meal or a celebration. It was somebody's birthday or a first date or something like that. It was definitely a community place. I'm curious, Wendy, putting this book together, what what did that do for you emotionally, kind of going through some of these memories and recalling uh, what was obviously a big part of your uh, time growing up? Um, it was it was definitely uh, very emotional for me. I really got on the bandwagon and decided, okay, fine, let's put some stuff together, and I started gathering information. And my grandfather had passed in '94, and my grandmother passed not too long ago, and that was really the impetus six, seven years ago to say, okay. Bubby knew I was going to do it. That's Yiddish for Grandma. And she was okay with it. She thought it was a good idea. So I, it was kind of mourning the loss of my grandparents, mourning the fact that the doll wasn't here anymore. People would come up to me with their memories of their visits and what they remember best about it, or some of them included me if we worked together. It was very emotional when people would say, let's bring back the doll. It was really, um, to me, bringing back yet another memory of how great it was. I have to ask this question. What are some of your favorite recipes from the Dell and from the book? <laughs> well, you know, I was always, always a sucker for the matzo ball soup and the kreplach, especially. And I learned how to make the kreplach sitting on a big butcher block table in the back bakery when I was seven years old. A lot of the dishes were really um, ones that had started in my family's uh, kitchen that we would have just at normal meals. So a lot of them were my favorites. The chocolate pie, of course. Really great things that, you know, you can't be on a diet if you're a Jewish girl that lives in a bakery. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I, I just want to congratulate you on the book. It's it's much more than a cookbook. It's a it's a history book, and it it's a Minnesota history book, and it was I found it to be very enjoyable. So thank you for the book thank and you. for the recipes. It was definitely a labor of love, and I wanted it to be a very personal book for everyone that read it. My thanks to Wendy Zelkin-Rosenstein, author of the Lincoln Dell Cookbook, published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press. And I can tell you I've already made the book's peanut butter chocolate chip bars, and they were delicious. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota Vikings open the season at home against Adrian Peterson and the New Orleans Saints on Monday Night Football. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with former Vikings linebacker Ben Lieber to discuss that game and the season ahead. Scott, Ben Lieber now works local radio in the Twin Cities as well as national television covering both the NFL and college football. What's his take on Adrian Peterson's return to Minnesota? I think that everybody is saying the right things. I'm, I'm excited as well, but you know this is not a game about Adrian Peterson. And and I think first and foremost it's not just the the Vikings defense that's saying that, but I think, you know, Sean Payton and the Saints are saying that. And I think that's that's the right answer. I everybody's excited um, you know, whether you're a, a fan of AP or you're not, he's a polarizing figure that you want to see how he plays. How does he react in this environment? How weird is it going to be to see him in another jersey on this field? So it'll be fun. It'll be exciting. But it's not a game about Adrian. Um, they will be. They will use him. But I don't think he's going to have much of a factor in the game. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. It's been kind of fun to figure out what Sean Payton might do with him. They have another good running back in Mark Ingram. We know Payton likes to throw. He's got Drew Brees, a future Hall of Famer. How much? Will Adrian Peterson? I mean, that's kind of the game we're all playing. How many carries and touches might he get? Yeah, I think he'll get probably in the neighborhood of you know nine, ten carries. I think he'll he'll get you know probably you know eighteen snaps. But I think a lot of that you know it's going to be pass protection or pass routes. I think he'll get about nine to ten carries. Um, it is going to be interesting. I think the Willie Sneed suspension um, it, it seems rather minor, but when you really look at it, it's a big thing for the Saints offense. Uh, he was he was so good in their slot. He was the guy that they really trusted, and everybody knows now in, in this modern NFL that slot position is very important. Um, what are they going to do? Are they going to rely on just two tight ends with Kobe Fleener uh, and the other tight end to be sort of a 12 personnel team? Uh, are they going to use Alvin Kamara, the new uh, rookie running back, as sort of your slot guy as well and and really sort of mess with the Vikings defense because if you go two tight ends and and or two running backs that keeps you a lot of times in base personnel and right now I think that's where the Vikings have the have the biggest need for improvement is covering guys out of the backfield man-to-man coverage with linebackers Ben Gideon if he's going to start put him in positions to be out of out of sync you mm-hmm. know put him outside get him lined up with the Camara or something like that that's going to be the interesting play Big picture, this Vikings team 2017, what's your assessment early in terms of how good they can be? Well, I, I think the potential's there. I think we I think we all collectively saw the preseason games and we're like, all right, well, let's we're, we're, they're getting humbled a little bit. They're getting grounded. I think it's it was good for the fan base and for the team uh, to get knocked down a little bit and realize that you still have to work and grind and, and you just don't play the game on paper. Any concern? We know the offensive line has, has, has struggled. Now it looks like it's settled. They've made their personnel choices. Uh, how big of a concern for you is that heading into this opener? It's still, to me, you know, the, the biggest question mark on this team. 
uh, even more so than replacing a guy like Adrian, because Adrian wasn't all that productive the last couple of years. So I, I think the running back position will figure itself out. I think everybody's happy with Dalvin and what he can do. Now it's the offensive line. You know, can you have, you know, essentially a, a, a new starting center, uh, a basically a new starting left guard, uh, although he's he's experienced but but new uh, in that position. You have two new tackles, and the only guy is is Berger at, at right guard, and you know he's he's on the wrong side of thirty, uh, although he's consistent. This offensive line is not going to scare anybody right now. Uh, I like the pieces. I like what they can do. I love Elf Line and his attitude, and I'm hoping that that. The guy that is this center, whoever it is, always brings an attitude. Those are the guys that that set everything up, and and they kind of set the tone. And I think Elfline is the type of guy that is a tone setter, and he will get the rest of those guys to play uh, like he does. Former Vikings linebacker Ben Lieber with us. Even bigger picture question, Minneapolis U.S. Bank Stadiums hosting the Super Bowl in early 2018. Who's your pick to uh, represent both conferences in that big game? Oh, wow. You know, I— I actually like um, I like a rematch of last year. Um, you know, I, I think the Patriots and until until somebody knocks them off, you know, it's it's an easy bet just to say, all right, the Patriots are going to be there. Now you look at the NFC. Um, I, I'm not as high on the Cowboys. I think there's just again more turmoil that's that's uh, being picked up there. There are a lot of distractions. They have a very good football team. You can't ever count, count Seattle out. Um, I just I like the offensive philosophy, and I feel like Matt Ryan has figured it out. Even though his his coordinator left for San Fran, I think he has figured out the recipe for success, and and they're going to continue to throw the ball around to six, seven, eight, nine different receivers every game, and then be hard offense to stop. That that defense was very young last year. I think they had uh, seven or eight uh, either rookies or first year players playing on that defense. So. I think they're going to be awfully good again. Um, so I, I see a rematch. Very good. Good to see you. Thank you. Yeah, Enjoy you the football season. Thank you. You too. That's Ben Lieber and Mike Win up high for it! Grimm. Sorry, Mike. I had to get one reference to that in there this week. My apologies. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening. And please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.